This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, it's uh, another week here in Northern California and in California, which is leading the country in the number of COVID deaths. We just surpassed 50,000 California souls who have perished. Uh, with the COVID epidemic, 500,000 deaths in the United States. The United States is the leader in something we don't want to lead, number of deaths and the number of infections. It looks like we're going to get another emergency use vaccine with J&J. So at least on the COVID front, it's our, as usual, good news and bad news. And where we are in Northern California, the area where you and I are broadcasting from, we've actually gone into the red zone. So I'm not recommending that we go to any indoor restaurants anytime soon. But, you know, that's kind of the COVID situation. And what we're going to talk about today, Jamal, is kind of a big picture issue now that some things have stabilized somewhat. And the question that we have that we're going to speak about today is this big picture question, which is, has the narrative on Palestine changed or is it in the process of changing even since the Biden administration has taken over in the last 30 plus days? That looks like there's some cracks in the Israeli narrative, their apartheid narrative, their attempt to whitewash, pinkwash, greenwash their apartheid practices. And we're beginning to see some, you know, emerging changes in that narrative. And then finally, at the end of the show today, We're going to talk about some breaking, disturbing news having to do with Ahmed program, which we've talked about extensively over the years here, and the the attacks on Professor Rabab Abdelhadi at San Francisco State. So we have a big show today, Jamal. That's right, yes. So so we'll start with uh, what you actually posed the question earlier, is the discourse on Israel in the U.S. shifting. And we have been noticing a shift. And at the same time, we've been noticing, of course, whenever there is a shift, the Hasbara machine uh, starts ramping up, uh, as we have seen it, the attacks, the threats, uh, uh, you know, on those who basically speak up or speak out, uh, they come under attack. Uh, We've seen what happened, I'm sure millions of people, which is good sometimes. By the way, this is good because the more they attack, they shine a spotlight on on what's going on. So I'm sure millions of people uh, during this past week saw the latest uh, episode of Saturday Night Live. Exactly. uh, exactly. The the skit, and it was part of the weekend update on Saturday Night Live. Uh, which basically was a very short skit. Just this is the thing about it, you know. They right. had they had a, a joke about the pandemic this weekend, and part of that joke was their anchor Michael Che uh, turned his attention to Israel's vaccination program, which we've been talking about it for now. What? How long, Jess? Months. And, and, and the way they Months. have been practicing medical apartheid. Of course, Israel has been practicing medical apartheid for decades, but now this was highlighted and, and it accelerate, accelerated uh, uh, during uh, COVID because Israel wants to portray itself as a leader in, in the COVID-19 vaccination. 
And but unfortunately, Jamal, the mainstream media has been actively participating in the whitewashing of the Israeli medical apartheid. Every single, and you know this, but every I, I single, know. and they don't give every you the- single major news outlet has been holding up the Israeli vaccination program as a model program. Exactly, and and the, the interesting thing about it just is they managed to omit certain details when they talk about Israel's vaccination program. Why is it efficient? Why Israel has all this vaccine? They don't say that they received the vaccine from Pfizer for free. Why right. Israel is sharing data? They applaud Israel. Well, Israel is obligated to share data. It's a quid pro quo agreement between Israel and and the companies, the drug companies That's that right. gave it the vaccine. So they, they omit all these things. But anyway, back to Saturday Night Live. So Israel, basically that little skit, and the, you know, Michael Che turned his attention to Israel, got some laughs, and this is what he said. He said, Israel is reporting that, that they vaccinated half of their population, and then there was a headline behind it, and I'm going to guess it's the Jewish half. So, <laughs> so that's what he said. This is, do you know how long this segment was, Jess? Eight seconds. 30 seconds. No, eight seconds. You're wrong. Eight seconds. I put it, I, it was a very short segment, a very short laugh. The eight segment, you know, segment, it, it was met with laughter from viewers inside studio. I know their studio, Studio 8H, uh, you know, in New York. And this has led, uh, you know, APAC and other organizations and Israeli leaders to accuse Che of leading into anti-Semitic trope with the Anti-Defamation League suggesting that Weekend Update this year had leaned into jokes that inappropriately use Jews as the punchline. This was the quote. And I'm quoting here from Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the ADL, who said in a statement uh, posted to Twitter, Saturday's night's deeply offensive joke about Israel's COVID-19 vaccination process not only missed the mark, but crossed the line, basing the premise of the joke on factual inaccuracies and playing into anti-Semitic trope in the process. Well, here, here's the thing, Jamal. There was nothing factually inaccurate about what was said. The reality is, is that half of the population in historic Palestine, primarily Palestinians, were denied access to a legally and morally and internationally obligated uh, obligation that the Israelis have to vaccinate everybody that they occupy and oppress. And they have chosen on the international stage to neglect half of the population in historic Palestine. They've neglected the Palestinian population. They are not giving them vaccines. They're leaving them to fend for themselves. And in fact, the reality, Jamal, is Michael Che was correct. When half of the Israeli population has been vaccinated, nine, you know, the majority is the Jewish Israeli population, not the Palestinian Muslim or Christian uh, population of historic Palestine. So what is the Jonathan Greenblatt's 
What are the factual inaccuracies that he's a he's trying to allude to? There, in fact, is nothing factually inaccurate about what was said. Well, that's why I said the Hasbara machine, that's Hasbara for those who don't know, is Israeli propaganda, has been going all over the place. And as you know, uh, Jess, uh, this, this subject, it's not the subject that we've been discussing, but the World Health Organization, United Nations Organizations, the EU, uh, you know, this has been reported from day one when Israel started vaccinating and they were saying, what about the Palestinian population? And, the, and, 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 and Israeli ministers were put under basically the spotlight. Uh, you remember we had uh, the right. uh, uh, Israeli minister of health who was saying, I'm not responsible for Palestinians, just like the Palestinians in Gaza are not responsible for the dolphins in the sea. I mean, they're making these ludicrous statements. And when we know anyone who has been on the ground that Israeli colonial settlements, or I should say Israeli illegal colonial settlements in the West Bank, just take the case of the West Bank, they are few hundred feet away from Palestinian towns and villages. I mean, think about this. Think about it in any scenario, in any city. If uh, you're living in San Francisco or you're living in the Bay Area, and then the government decides to, you know, we're going to vaccinate uh, daily city, you know, I'm just giving an example, but we're not going to vaccinate foster city, right? But actually, Jamal, I would take issue with you. It's even worse. It's like the city and county of San Francisco saying, we're going to vaccinate the Mission District, but not Bayview Hunters Point. And for those of you that don't know San Francisco, those are two neighborhoods in San Francisco that are right next to each other. So that's that's probably a better example, Jamal. It is a better example. And the, you're, more, the illegal, you're more accurate. The, yeah, the illegal colonial settlements are literally neighborhood to neighborhood. You have an illegal colonial settlement here, and in the neighborhood right next to it is is the original Palestinian town or village. And they're choosing deliberately, immorally, illegally to not vaccinate their neighbors. We know the way the pandemic is. This is not only an ignorant and foolish uh, approach, but it's gonna it's gonna backfire on the Israelis, whatever. The virus doesn't understand the difference between an illegal Israeli settlement and a neighborhood next to it, Jamal. The virus will continue to travel if the Israelis continue this immoral, illegal practice. But I want to get back to your point. How does eight seconds of reality freak out the Israeli Hasbara machine? You had APAC. You had the ADL, you had the JDL, you had the Israeli Hasbara machine go into overdrive for eight seconds of reality. That's really stunning. Because this is, uh, you know, going back to uh, historical precedent. Israel, and I'm talking the Hasbara machine because they basically act, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, APAC is an arm of the Israeli government. It should be registered as a foreign, uh, you know, agency right here in the United States. A foreign agent. A yeah, foreign, foreign agent, agent here. I mean, this is the argument. We've made this argument time and time again. And they really, in general, if you pay attention to kind of global news, even in Europe, they're, they're not as aggressive uh, when it comes to what politicians say, even though they attack British politicians, 
more than others. They attack French politicians more than Italian, more than Greek, whenever it comes to Israel and so forth. But in the United States in particular, they always are on the attack for the slightest thing because they want to keep that old narrative that everything is great and good about Israel. The Palestinians are bad. Israel is a democracy. You know, we hear that time and time again. Israel isn't the only the, the only democracy in the Middle East. We hear that time and time again. And of course, they bury their head and they want to bury the heads of all congressmen and congresswomen and senators in the sand when it comes to the apartheid. And everyone knows Israel now has transformed the whole area between the Mediterranean Sea and the uh, Jordan River into an apartheid state. Any which way you look at it, and the most recent of these examples is medical apartheid, and this has been highlighted. So they freak out. However, we said the narrative is shifting because, you know, Saturday Night Live would never, ever come near any criticism towards Israel. And, 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 you know, That's Lauren right. Michaels, right, uh, who's, who's the founder and creator of Saturday Night Live, he's Jewish. He's a Canadian Jewish. In fact, if I want to take it further, uh, I think he was born in, on a kibbutz in Israel before his family immigrated to Canada. He's Canadian. So they, right. to kind of come and say uh, that he's running an anti-Semitic show, because that's what they're saying. I mean, he's, he's the final, the buck stops with decider. him. The buck stops no, he's with the him. decider, Jamal. He's a decider. He's, decider. he's yeah. not going to allow this, but even then, that's the, the thing, is we know with allies like the Jewish Voice for Peace, right here in the United States, in Canada and everywhere, and a lot of progressive uh, Jews who see the truth for what it is. And they have been very vocal and very critical uh, about what they've been seeing. So, and then I'm gonna come to the other example just because that ties into that, uh, if whether the discourse on Israel in the US is shifting. Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, also the former Democratic presidential contender, he just posted a tweet, a tweet saying that Israel is responsible for the health of all the people under its control. It is outrageous that Netanyahu would use spare vaccines to reward his foreign allies while so many Palestinians in the occupied territories are still waiting. It's a very strong tweet, Jamal. He would not have tweeted this tweet Five years Very ago. Very strong. Or three years ago. Jamal, he wouldn't have tweeted that a year ago. I mean, I think this is really speaking to the power of the shift in the narrative. And just to put it in a little bit of context, I mean, Bernie Sanders obviously is a very progressive voice in the Democratic Party. He's on the progressive AOC, Bernie Sanders, you know, side of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, clearly. But he would not even have tweeted that a year ago. The, the, the reason I believe that we're seeing some of this shift, and we've been talking about this for the last four years under the Trump administration, the Israelis decided to hitch their political wagon, and specifically Benjamin Netanyahu decided to hitch his political wagon to Donald Trump, to white supremacy, and, and to this, you know, kind of delusional ideas of, um, of uh uh you know extreme 
extremism, you know, uh, basically white supremacy extremism. And that Donald Trump perspective, which came home to roost and is causing, you know, the the kind of difficulties, to put it mildly, that we're in right now with an attempt to undermine the election, we see this split in the United States between, you know, allegiance to Donald Trump and white supremacy and domestic white terrorism and kind of everybody else in the United States. The Israelis decided to hitch their wagon, Jamal, for the last four years with white supremacy. And now, perhaps, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think they're paying a price for this? Can they have it both ways? Well, they're, they're definitely trying to have it both ways. But I think this is a pill that is very hard to swallow, even for the die-hard supporters of Israel. I've seen, yes. I've seen a shift, even those who for many years, I mean, they, whether they've been to, uh, on the ground there and seen it with their own eyes, I mean, at the end of the day, with now the internet, with satellite TV, people are not blind. They see what's going on. They see the daily atrocities. They know that Gaza is under siege. They know that Israel has been uh, gobbling up the West Bank uh, inch by inch, uh, mile by mile on a daily basis and basically shredding the Oslo agreement. I mean, they know it. Do you think Chuck Schumer doesn't know that? I mean, he's an ardent supporter of Israel and, and, and now he's the House, I mean, the Senate majority leader. Do you think he doesn't know what's going on on the ground? No, but, but to that point, Jamal, about Chuck Schumer, if we want to kind of do a deep dive on the political dynamics and the difference between the House and the Senate, Right now, the Republicans are going through uh, kind of a self-implosion in terms of their own identity crisis about whether or not to continue to be a party of Donald Trump or to forge a new kind of Republican party. The Democrats are going to go through the same thing, Jamal, in terms of progressive issues, whether it's the $15 an hour minimum wage. But I do think where this has the potential to split and splinter the Democratic Party has to do with the question of their fealty and loyalty to Israeli apartheid. That's going to come home to roost in the Democratic Party. Well, it is it coming came... home. It is coming to home. And I'm going to give you the third example just because I've been okay. looking at this. So again, so as we talked on the show before, that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu had to wait almost a month to receive the phone call from That's right. President Biden. That's right. Usually... He receives that call within the first 48 hours. I mean, it's kind of on the first, uh, you know, the handful of world leaders, they receive the calls. Of course, uh, Prime Minister of England, Canada, Israel, somewhere there. He had to wait a whole month after many, right. uh, um, you know, uh, questions to, to his administration. When are you going to call Benjamin Netanyahu? And the media started to, they finally gets that call. So, Speaker of the House, because she cannot go ahead of the president, had to wait to make that call. So the Speaker right. of the House, Nancy Pelosi, also had to wait until President Biden made that call. So Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, recently tweeted, and I'm just paraphrasing here, that she spoke to Israeli Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu to reaffirm the unbreakable bond, blah, 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 that thing. And we discussed COVID responses and any other thing. Just, I urge our 
viewers and listeners, go, go to her Twitter account and look at that tweet. She came under attack and mockery. I mean, people were, I was like amazed. And I'm one of them. I, I just, I said to her, Madam Speaker, you are whitewashing Israeli Absolutely. apartheid. And I wasn't the only one. There were hundreds, if not thousands of comments telling her all kinds of things. You know, you're hitching your wagon to Benjamin Netanyahu, to the Israeli far right. You are covering up for Israel. They're not giving, uh, you're talking about their great work uh, um, uh, in vaccination, but you're not mentioning the Palestinians. And that's where I see the shift that we are talking about. No, I think you're right, Jamal. And ironically, Nancy Pelosi represents the district that uh, you and I uh, work in. You know, she's the representative from the San Francisco and, you know, parts of the North Bay, and which is among the most progressive part of the entire United States. And she had the audacity to tweet something like that. Of course, she's going to come under fire. Of course, she's going to have a critical analysis. And I will tell you, this is part of what I spoke about earlier. Both Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are going to facilitate this kind of uh, uh, division or divide or split within the Democratic Party much sooner than uh, they realize because people are tired of blind loyalty and fealty to an apartheid state. Uh, Israel doesn't deserve to get this pass on COVID. It doesn't deserve to get a pass on their apartheid practices. And they certainly don't deserve a pass on their continued occupation and oppression of half the population in historic Palestine. I think, Jamal, that the Democratic Party is is kind of headed for some challenges in the future, to put it mildly, on this very top. Well, I mean, I mean, definitely. I mean, we saw that uh, in the primaries, and of course, uh, that's right. President uh, Biden uh, won, but uh, Bernie Sanders, who made that statement, he was initially the, the the first choice before, and we talked about this before. The Democratic Party machine ganged up against him. Nevertheless, right. he has a lot of following. You have the uh, the progressive progressives within the party. Uh, you have the squad. The, so the squad has been expanding, you know, now, you know, the election of Jamal Bowman and, and others. So you have... Cory Bush. Uh, yeah, you have more and more people. So there is, you know, not a substantial, it's not a majority yet, but you have a, you know, more and more people who are now joining the progressive uh, segment of, of the party and who are pushing back on this kind of blind support of a regime that has been uh, engaged in oppressing Palestinians for for decades. And that's one example, not to mention other foreign policy issues or issues when it comes to uh, Black Lives Matter in this country or issues about, look, the latest thing. I mean, imagine we are in a country, Jess, and we can't pass a, a bill to offer people $15 an hour. Who do you know lives on $15 an hour? Or or well, in some states, they get 6 and $7 an hour. Who can afford Jamal, to live on 6 and $7 you, an hour? You can't, you can't live on that. But we're also living in a country now, the United States, in which 30 million children go to bed every night uh, hungry. 
And we go to we live in a country where 30 million Texans, I'm sorry, uh, tens of, uh, you know, millions of Texans are going to bed hungry and without clean water. So, our, I mean, let, let's face the reality. We're, we're headed in terms of a denial of progressive policies and the cost to our infrastructure. We look at what happened in Texas last week. We look at what's been happening in terms of climate change and the denial of reality that the Republicans have been putting on this country for so many years now. The consequences of that are showing themselves in some very you know, painful, difficult ways, you know, with people dying and starving and losing their homes because of a failure of, you know, leadership and a failure to acknowledge reality. And this thing about the Israelis, Jamal, is very similar. It's a very similar kind of denial of reality that, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, who are so-called Democrats, have participated in with Republicans to gloss over, whitewash, pinkwash, greenwash, whatever you want to call it, the Israeli apartheid system. This could be, Jamal, this next four years. I mean, it may be too much to say it's a tipping point, but this could be the beginning of a getting closer to that tipping point where the reality of Israeli apartheid really comes to hit the American mainstream. Well, I'm just going to end, end on, on this note before we go to our next segment and to ask our audience to ask themselves this question. Why is Congress, year after year, writes a blank check to Israel, three, four billion dollars, they're so quick to approving foreign aid to a country that's engaged in apartheid when the same Congress debates for months over raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour? Just think it's about it. Point. I mean, it's mind-boggling. No, We're throwing money left and right at them. And then when the average American person is struggling to make ends meet in this country. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Uh, so Jess, we've had Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi and our listeners and viewers are very familiar with her. Uh, she's the director of the Ahmed program at San Francisco State University several times. She's been under attack. Uh, she's been uh, subject to lawsuits. She won her lawsuit, her first lawsuit against uh, the Lawfare Project. And now uh, we find out that uh, the San Francisco State uh, University administration is uh, trying to create an alternative universe uh, by claiming that they support the Arab and Muslim and Palestinian communities uh, in San Francisco. They support their, uh, the, the students, they support the community, they support the faculty, and by trying to undermine Dr. Abdelhadi and Ahmed. And so we have uh, on our program two uh, San Francisco State University alumni who also are graduates of um, the Ahmed program. One of them is now a professor, right? So she has her PhD and the other former student is uh, currently completing his uh, PhD at uh, UCLA. Uh, let's uh, listen and watch what they had to say. 
For the past several years, we have been discussing the systematic attacks on Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, director of the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies, otherwise known as AMID at San Francisco State University. Dr. Abdelhadi has been on Arab Talk several times. Today, we are catching up on the latest updates by two of her former students, and these are not your average students. Salim Shihade is currently completing his PhD at UCLA, and Dr. Lubna Katami is assistant professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at UCLA. Welcome to Arab Talk, Salim and Lubna. Thank you, Hi, Jamal. Jamal. Thanks for very happy to be here. Thanks so, Salim, uh, briefly tell us about Ahmed. Why is it under constant attack? Thanks, Jamal. Yeah, I wanted to start by saying Ahmed started off uh, out of um, out of a task force, Jamal, that you were part of, that was part of the community to address the growing anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim racism in the university and in our in our communities. And out of that, Dr. Bahadi was scouted to kind of start and lead this initiative. And since then, the program that she's led has had classes um, in Islamophobia, classes in Arab and Arab American feminisms, classes in colonialism, imperialism and resistance, Arab media images in America, and classes on Palestine from an ethnic studies perspective. Uh, we also have open classrooms which deal with a broad range of interconnected issues uh, that uh, including indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, queer liberation, anti-imperialism. Last week we had the day of remembrance uh, at San Francisco State University with Asian American studies, for instance, and community orgs with Japanese Latin Americans Coalition for Justice, among others. And I raise this because this is the crux of what Ahmed is. Ahmed is a program as Dr. Dadi says, about the indivisibility of justice, right? It teaches about liberation uh, by centering marginalized communities and centering and focusing on communities uh, of Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian descent, uh, as well as kind of the interactions, global interactions that we have as part of the diasporas. Um, this is where she's been attacked for most, Right. And this is where, where the attacks are coming in from, from Zionist organizations, Israel lobby groups and the university working hand in hand together to stifle an attempt to not only uh, destroy and undermine the program, but also her scholarship and her standing as well. Um, and, you know, for years now, there have been uh, accusations of Dr. Bahadi engaging in terrorism. Uh, of of uh, the students in the Ahmed program and the General Union of Palestine students, with Dr. Kathami and I were both a part of, um, that that we are uh, that that we kind of also perpetuate anti-Semitism on campus through the directorship of Dr. Bahadi, who's who's telling us to do these anti-Semitic things. These these are smear campaigns levied against her because of her scholarship and activism. Um, out of that, there's been university investigations based on these meritless claims. There's been congressional statements. Uh, uh, directed at Dr. Dahadi condemning her for, for supposed engagement in these activities, which are completely unfounded. Um, there have been uh, death threats levied against her and against the students at San Francisco State University who advocate for Palestine. Um, they were the subject of uh, smear campaigns like the David Horowitz Project, which posted uh, very violent images of them all across their campus and, and, and Canary Mission, which posted uh, these these. Um, accusations of anti-Semitism and terrorism online for a public audience. Um, there's been lawsuits directed at her by the Lawfare Project, another Zionist organization. And recently, 
there's been a Department of Education investigation opened against uh, UCLA for Dr. Blahadi's co coming and giving a guest lecture on Islamophobia and the interconnections between white supremacy and Zionism. Um, and these are sort of the, the, um, the ways in which the university and these Zionist organizations are collaborating with one another to kind of stifle any, any of the work on Palestine advocacy and scholarship coming out of the program. Now, the attacks, I mean, by the Zionists were expected because this has been ongoing. And I recall, and this is for uh, Lubna here, you know, Lubna after the community uh, celebrated the launch of Ahmed uh, at San Francisco State University, former San Francisco State University President Corrigan, um, shortly after, you know, we hired, basically, I'm, I'm talking about on behalf of the community, Dr. Abdel Hadi. He reneged on his commitment by uh, not by canceling two line items, and and then uh, they used the pretext that it was a budget issue, which we knew, uh, you know, from different sources that that was not the case. And I recall something, uh, Lubna, that you talked about this, uh, about this whole thing, about keeping Ahmed anemic and why the reason behind of cutting basically the two uh, slots that were designated to hire two additional uh, professors. Yes, thank you so much. I think, you know, Salim provided such great background in terms of what the attacks have been and why. Um, and I think it's it's really important to revisit this period of the early early 2000s because really, you know, the creation of the task force, the hiring of Dr. Abdul Hadi, the the creation of the Ahmed program, that was a response to decades of anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim racism uh, and suppression of free speech of student organizers at SFSU long before uh, long before the creation of the task force. So the task force was really meant to uh, talk about a mechanism that could rectify these forms of intolerance, of discrimination, of racism, of hatred, especially in a post 9-11, 2001 uh, context during the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. And we really believed that centering critical pedagogy and scholarship uh, for the purpose of social transformation and liberation was key. So what, by bringing Dr. Abdul Hadi on, I think the university, uh, you know, it, it was very clear that we wanted this department to be housed in the historic College of Ethnic Studies for all that it stood for, especially uh, the 1968 student strikes that realized the, the creation of ethnic studies as a field and as a college at SFSU. And so Dr. Abdul Hadi had been fulfilling that, that promise of really centering a critical pedagogy and scholarship. In 2009, the GUPS students organized a second anniversary for the Edward Said Cultural Mural, which was inaugurated in 2007 after a three-year-long fight with the campus administration. And following that anniversary, based on the selection of the keynote speaker, uh, President Corrigan sent an email in red text to GUPS and to Dr. Abdul Hadi, punishing, scolding us for our selection of the speaker and for advancing um, efforts for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, uh, both on campus and in society, the growing BDS movement. And so this was the around in 2009 when the open search lines for two uh, senior scholars in Ahmed were, were open. We were searching for these candidates. 
uh, President Corgan scolded Gups for the, the mural anniversary selection of the keynote speaker, was scolding the MSA for events uh, against Islamophobia, and simultaneously shut down the open search uh, for the, the two new Ahmed candidates, citing that it was a budgetary response to the fiscal crisis. But that was in 2009. We are now in 2021, and the Ahmed search lines have never been restored since 2009, as Salim has, has demonstrated. Dr. Abdel Hadi, her students, the Ahmed program, the GUPS uh, student organization, the MSA, have been under constant threats and attacks, and the university has really fallen short of protecting the safety and wellness of its Arab and Muslim uh, and Palestinian student population. And moreover, uh, when it does, you know, imp, you know, apply these symbolic gestures against all forms of intolerance, it really does not um, address the systemic forms of anti-Palestinian um, discourse and, and hate that's happening at SFSU. And furthermore, it's really fallen short on its institutional promise and commitment to actually support an institutional program like Ahmed. So for 15 years, this program is a one-person uh, staffed uh, uh, a program, Dr. Abdel Hadi, who has been pushing as much as she can with um, such limitations, restrictions, and cuts uh, and denial of access to resources. So why do, you, why do you think the administration is reluctant to support Ahmed? I mean... That's the big question. I mean, what is the main reason behind it here? And, and then you're absolutely right. Uh, I participated in the early meetings as part of the task force with President Corrigan. It took a long time to get to a certain point where Ahmed was established. We were very hopeful also to meet with uh, President Wong uh, initially to kind of, uh, you know, bring back those line items and then came to a full halt and similarly, the and I'm talking I'm, I'm on maybe not as a, just as a journalist, I'm talking about as a community member uh, who uh, has been part of these meetings. And then we met also with President Mahoney, again, full of hope. And then shortly thereafter, there are excuses, whether it's budgetary issues or now it's a COVID. We don't have the money. It's COVID. We're having cuts. And, and it's just like I use the word systematic. I mean, it is. You know, these, you know, I mean, do you think the grand plan is to really stifle Ahmed and shut it down? I think, I mean, I really do believe that the issue is part of a larger issue that is about the reordering of the political and intellectual integrity of the field of ethnic studies more broadly. And I think what's happening to Ahmed is, is case in point. Ethnic studies as a field was founded by student organizers who went on strike for six months at SFSU to demand accountability from the university to demand an education that centered people of color, oppressed people's histories and accounts of, 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 of knowledge, right? That centered their forms of knowledge that called very explicitly for an end to racism and imperialism and war and all of these different things. And so that legacy of uh, the original ethnic studies is something that Dr. Abdul Hadi and her scholarship is very committed to. That, of course, includes liberation and justice in and for Palestine. That is not something that we are going to step back on because that is an, an integral component of understanding Arab and Muslim studies and communities and political histories more broadly. You cannot separate the question of Palestine, the horrifying forms of violence and colonialism and imperialism that Palestinians have been subjected to for 72 years 
from an understanding of our intellectual schools of thought and, and canons and fields of study and political activism. So that commitment to Palestine within the scholarship, within the teaching pedagogy, within the open classrooms and the public discourse is what is inviting Zionist repression who are attempting to one, on the one hand, sometimes just completely nullify the Ahmed program entirely, or on the other hand, the more liberal Zionist approach, which is try to accept uh, Ahmed studies, but to quell the question of Palestine from being a, a topic of open public intellectual and political debate. And that is not something that that GUPS students, MSA, are uh, you know Ahmed alumni, GUPS alumni, the community will stand for at SFSU. So I really do think that this has to do, the university is, is, is caving to external Zionist pressure uh, to, um, to suppress free speech and academic freedom at SFSU. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's really, at the end of the day, it's going to be about academic freedom. Now, uh, Dr. Abdel Hadi has been on the show, and we've had her several times, and we talked about the two lawsuits. I mean, the first lawsuits, a lawsuit she won, the Lawfare Project lost, lost it, and then they went after San Francisco State University, and they reached a settlement, but she wasn't part of it. And I would just want to fast forward now to what's going on now. I mean, within the past past few months, uh, we have word that San Francisco State now is trying a not-so-new technique, because it has been used by uh, President Wang before, is to bypass Ahmed and circumvent Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi and, 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 and meet with uh, some members of the community, and fr frankly, to use these members of the community uh, to give them a pass for, for all the mistreatment that they've been subjecting Dr. Abdul Hadi uh, you know, to and, and mistreatment of Arab and Muslim students and faculty. Salim, can you tell us a little bit about this? Thank you. Yeah, no, and I think that this is um, one of, I mean, there are many issues with this new meeting that the president has been holding and calling for. And I think uh, one of the core issues as well is the way in which it addresses is, is it does multiple things. One is it completely erases the institutional history of community organizing that has been done for decades uh, among and within our communities to push San Francisco State University and to push for that critical education that Dr. Kotame was just talking about. And so it, it, it attempts to undermine those as the stakeholders and to say that all the work that you have done, we're going to wipe the slate, it's, we're going to start at point zero, and we're going to address it from this new perspective. And the new perspective that they want to address is one in which racism is a matter exclusively of individual bigotry and bias, and racism has nothing to do with a mode of, of structural oppression uh, and dominance. Right. And this is, I think, key is that what we have been saying in the community with Dr. Blahadi for years is that structural problems demand structural remedies. What we need and what the task force called for was an institution, was an academic home that was that that was home for the community, that was home for the students, and home for the for scholars to come together and have discussions and and build critical insight on Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian communities here and everywhere, right? And how do you combat Islamophobia? How do you combat anti-Arab racism? How do you combat um, anti-Palestinian racism? Is you must challenge it head on in every single one of its manifestations, 
right? And and we must do the hard work of doing that investigation and having these discussions. And this is the hard work that Ahmed is 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 pushing for. This is the hard work that Ahmed is is a leader in with us, right? It's not in it alone. It's with us as the community. And this is exactly what the university does not want. The university does not want us to rock the boat. The university just wants a steady supply of students, pay your tuition, do your years, get out, get the donors, uh, get the get the San Francisco tech money, get the get the you know the international donors, get the you know get the money, get the students, and get it. They want to turn this into kind of a clientele system of just pushing students in and out for money. But re- decades now, decades, the fight has been that education is not for the sake of just accumulating facts. Education should be for the purpose of collective liberation. And this is kind of the principle that Ahmed operates under. And this is what the university is absolutely hating. And the way that they're doing it is they said, we want Ahmed out. We want Dr. Blahadi out. We want the communities that are with Ahmed out. So they're undermining the, this entire effort, saying no to what you're doing, yes to this new this new model, this which... which I was trying to think uh, the other day, kind of like uh, something out of the box, uh, you know, because I've kind of seen this over the past 20 years and this most recent strategy, does it have to do uh, anything to do with COVID? Because campuses are now like ghost towns. I don't know if students are, uh, they're going to go back in September and they're going to have the 100% occupancy in wherever so that there is an opportunity for them to kind of go behind this whole thing about COVID because now you don't have student activists on campus as you were talking about. You don't have, I mean, you know, you had all these students, organizations, groups and gaps, but they can't really. They're not there on campus to monitor everything, to, to demonstrate in front of the administration. Everyone is like online, uh, just like we're having this interview uh, online. And if this is actually another angle for them to kind of, uh, you know, win their battles against the community, kind of like uh, take advantage of a wind of opportunity when they see everyone is kind of distracted with COVID, staying at home, no students on campus. Do you think, is, are, are, do you think they're exploiting this? One of the things that we see is that in the undermining of the Ahmed program uh, with this camp is that also this semester and last semester, the university has cut 60% of Ahmed course offerings. 60% of our of our course offerings have been cut. Um, and this is, I mean, this is part of a wider system. Not only have they cut the course offerings, they have forced uh, Dr. Dadi to teach courses outside of the Ahmed program. They have they have uh, forced Dr. Bahadi to shift uh, which courses she's going to offer and offer them at the, uh, and attempt to, and make her uh, create new syllabi at the eleventh hour, right before classes are supposed to be scheduled. They're completely disrupting any form of stability, not only for the Ahmed program but also what that means, right? So these are part of her scholarship. Right. This is also part of the stability for students who are minoring in the program. This also impacts every single one of the lectures. I've been a lecturer in Ahmed. Jamal, you've been a lecturer in Ahmed. Lubna, um, you're a professor now, so you know, <laughs> you know. Hopefully, we'd love you to come and be a professor at San Francisco State University in Ahmed. But mm-hmm. they're preventing that, mm-hmm. as you said. Dr. Bahadi is the only 
professor, we have in the Ahmed program. So this is part of, and what they're doing now is that they have cut Ahmed's budget and they have cut Ahmed's resources for decades. Now their excuse is they're cutting it because of the financial burden that's pressed on the San Francisco State University system. What was their excuse two years ago? What was their excuse three years ago, four years ago, five years ago when they kept cutting things? Well, now they're using COVID. I mean, that's what I'm saying. They're using Discover and they don't have this pushback because now they can meet and they have been meeting. No one, uh, you know, you can meet online and and you don't have to be, there, there is no transparency in that you know you don't see people coming to the administration building they can meet with anyone and say these people represent the community and you don't have any pushback from the students because they're poor students and I feel really sorry for students especially the ones who just started that they don't have any kind of campus life so you know they're relegated to studying at home that they are taking advantage of this situation and just you know not only that they are saying we're cutting the courses because you know our budget has been cut because of uh, COVID, but also they're exploiting the situation to undermine Ahmed. And that's how I, I, I see it. I wanna see what do you think is gonna happen now, Lubna? What do you see as a solution out of this, you know, for the community, for the students, for the supporters of Dr. Abdel Hadi and Ahmed? Yeah, thank you so much, Donat. I mean, I think I, I just want to revisit the COVID question before because I think it there is this broader, you know, this broader way of understanding that this pandemic has illustrated the failure of the university, uh, its increased privatization, and through the pandemic specifically, as we saw with the Ahmed case, you know. Um, the censorship of the event that was taking place, the Ahmed event that was taking place featuring Leila Khalid last fall um, by Zoom and the failure of the university to provide an alternative platform, right? So this is a, a complete infringement on public education and on public universities. And I think that it indicates that um, there really needs to be a reordering of, of higher education in order for it to be the people's space, uh, which is what it should be should have always and should remain being. being. Um, I think the issue today is that the university is jumping through all of these loopholes and not that the university is being completely silent. The university sends a number of emails out about Islamophobia or about intolerance and all these things, but they're continuously doing all of this work to come up with these random solutions to issues that the community for 20 years now has given them our asks, which later turned into demands, which later turned into asks and then demands, they're just evading it over and over and over again and coming up with all of these other random apologies and ideas and solutions that cannot rectify structural problems, as Salim has talked about. The community has demanded, the community meeting, the community organizations, students, Dr. Abdul Hadi, Ahmed, friends of Ahmed, um, the strikers of 1968, we have demanded restoring the Ahmed lines uh, stopping the attacks on Dr. Abdul Hadi, her students, and GUPS, and stopping to cave to Zionist pressures that make them more precarious, right? Um, and defending the right to academic freedom and free speech on campus. These are not totally bogus uh, or totally outrageous demands or needs. And they are sort of the really basic things that the university needs to do in order for all of us to move forward, uh, rather than you know all of these other symbolic gestures, which have just gotten us nowhere through three university administration president presidents, Corrigan, Wong, uh, and now Mahoney. Well, we're going to keep continuing to talk about this issue. It's not going to go away anytime soon. 
Dr. Lubna Katami, and soon to be Dr. Salim Shihadeh. Thank you for coming on Arab Talk, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having us. Well, uh, Jamal, you know, Salim and Lubna, both of whom uh, we know very well and have interviewed over the years, give a very compelling kind of analysis of uh, what's happening contextually at San Francisco State, but also part of the larger political context of what's happening, you know, in the Bay Area and the country. That was uh, very disturbing to hear that. And you and I, by the way, have a bit of insight into that, you know, from the last couple of decades, too. Well, I mean, uh, actually, before me, Jess, you were one of the uh, initial people on the so-called task force. What, so-called that was, task force. <laughs> that was established by former President Corrigan. And then I joined later on and we, we were engaged in these, uh, I, would, I would say, not so friendly meetings. But eventually... No, they weren't friendly at all. But I it, mean, we've been doing battle, <laughs> Jamal. I mean, the reality is you and I and our community have been doing battle with San Francisco State for at you know, for a minimum of 20 years now plus. And the reality is, and, you know, you you know the president of San Francisco State, you've met with her, you teach there, because you, you know this situation, is um, really playing a pretty dirty game right now with our community, with the Palestinian Arab Muslim community in the Bay Area. And it's a typical tactic of divide and conquer, right? You find house Arabs, you know, that will come to the table and pretend that they're important and support and marginalize the more progressive uh, elements of the community who are saying what is happening at San Francisco State with Ahmed and the Palestinian Arab Muslim students and faculty there is unacceptable. They want to marginalize that. That's what they've tried to do for years and bring in, as we have called them, and they need to be called out for this Jamal, these are house Arabs. They're willing to come and sit inside the house and disparage the more progressive uh, voices of our community. It's a very disturbing development. I mean, the fact remains, Jess, and uh, when we, uh, the community, managed to uh, get a commitment from San Francisco State University to establish the program Ahmed, and uh, they went through a whole vetting process to find an excellent and a very qualified uh, scholar uh, to bring her here, Dr. Rabab Abdel Hadi, with the promise to build that department, to build and actually the initiative into a full department to be the fifth department within the School of Ethnic Studies. And then uh, by just starting, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, this is a huge campus, uh, you know, San Francisco State University really increase uh, um, that department by two additional professors to basically to support and help Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi. Can you have a department with one person, Jess? I mean, no, you can't. I mean, is it, you can't, Jamal. So, so since she's been hired for the past 15 plus years, Jess, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi and the program uh, Ahmed, uh, they've been kept anemic. Anemic, and that's the word. No financial support, no moral support, you know, plugging along. If, if someone else wasn't as uh, resilient as she is, the program would have collapsed. And but that's we in- should, you know, Jamal, we should, we need to say this. It's not easy to say this, but we have to. 
pro-Israel elements within the San Francisco community within California and the United States have been putting pressure on San Francisco State, on the president, on the provost, on the faculty uh, for many, many years now to isolate uh, uh, Professor Abdul Hadi and to marginalize Palestinian students and faculty in communities for many years. Let's call it what it is. I mean, this is related to the our first segment about the changing narrative and the Hasbro attack. The Hasbro machine has been attacking Professor Abdul Hadi and the Ahmed program for 15 years or more now, Jamal, and it's all part of the same package. Well, then the question uh, for this segment is uh, just, will the discourse on Palestine actually uh, at San Francisco State University will shift to start respecting the community to respect their faculty and students, or are they going to keep succumbing to pressures from basically I have an Zionist easy organizations? For you, yes, I have the answer for you. Yes, they will continue to succumb to pressures from the outside. They will continue to succumb to Hasbara forces, from pro-Israeli forces, from influences outside of the Bay Area, outside of San Francisco, outside of California. And, you know, you and I, this is not our first rodeo, Jamal. We had some optimism with the previous new president after Corrigan. We thought, oh, okay, he's a progressive. He's from the Bay Area. Maybe he will uh, be more open-minded and an honest kind of uh you know, arbiter in all of this. He was a disaster. Now we have President Mahoney. You had a number of meetings with her. You had some initial optimism, but she's also turning out to be a bit of a, um, a dishonest kind of arbiter and broker in this whole thing, trying to bring in other people to support the isolation and the exclusion of the real progressive forces of our community. And you know what we call this Right, Jess? This whole pretense. Pep, progressive except on Palestine. That's right. And we're seeing it at San Francisco State. And I'm afraid, Jamal, we probably will see changes in the political narrative about uh, apartheid Israel before we see some of the changes within the academy and at the academic level. Well, on this note, Jess, uh, we have come to another to an end of another episode of Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, go to our website, arabtalkradio.com. You can uh, download for free all the latest episodes, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>